When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, there's a planet killer asteroid heading our way. Scientists grow blood cells in the lab and the looming twindemic. But first, it was on this day 1980 that US spacecraft Voyager 1 sent back its first close-up pictures of Saturn during its flyby. The UN Climate Summit COP27 is officially underway. More than 120 delegates and world leaders touched down in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for two weeks of negotiations on climate action. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres kicked things off on a sobering note. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. The deadly impacts of climate change are here and now. It's been a year of record-breaking heat waves, devastating floods and crippling drought. It's no surprise that climate anxiety is rising, particularly amongst young people who've mostly only known a world affected by climate change. But experts say that these fears can actually be good news for the planet. My name's Lorraine Whitmarsh. I'm a professor of environmental psychology at the University of Bath and director of the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations. So my research is all about how to engage people with climate change, what people think about it, how to communicate it, how we can get people to change their behaviour to help tackle climate change. In Lorraine's latest study, her research has found a link between climate concerns and taking effective action, including reducing carbon footprints by cutting down on waste or buying second hand. Now, I've always thought anxiety was generally a bad thing. Shouldn't we be trying to stress less? Maybe a bigger problem in society is people not worrying enough about climate change to be motivated to change their behaviour. So this is, after all, a really big existential threat that we face. And so you could say a, a natural reaction is to be quite worried about it. And so... It's probably, it's potentially healthy to have some degree of worry, at least, to actually motivate people to want to help tackle the issue. Um, It may be the case that at very high levels of anxiety, if it is causing you not to be able to sleep and it's disrupting your relationships, obviously that's not a good thing. But it may be that, that at some level of anxiety, there's enough there to motivate people to want to actually help resolve the problem. So how can we harness our anxieties and fears about climate for climate good? So I think one of the interesting things we found was this this relationship as well between media consumption and climate anxiety. And we kind of know that as well from other 
research is that the main way people learn about climate change is what they see in the news and in other areas of the media. And so that means there's a really powerful influence that the media potentially has in shaping what people do about climate change. So not just raising awareness of the issue, but also highlighting the role that people can play in tackling climate change and saying it's not too late to do something. These are things you can do. You can also lobby your government and take kind of try to influence the system more widely. So there, there is a really important role that media plays um, in not just raising awareness, but also stimulating action. So I think for me, the one of the kind of implications of the study is we really need media to be on board in shaping positive, productive responses from people. What's your message to the listeners who might be dealing with some form of climate anxiety then? So we're still trying to understand a lot about climate anxiety and to what extent it might be a problem, whether we need to kind of find ways to encourage people to kind of manage that anxiety. But what we know more generally from research on anxiety is that it really helps to find other people who are struggling with with issues in a similar way. And this is all the more important with climate change because it is a collective problem. And actually, we know getting together with other people who want to do something about climate change means that then you can do something bigger. So you can actually get together as a community or as a workplace and take more effective action. And then you will be able to kind of feel like you're more effectively dealing with this big problem that otherwise might seem like too big to deal with um, at an individual level. So I would say definitely find other people, join a group, take action and channel your, your anxiety into something really constructive. Researchers say they've found a potentially life-threatening asteroid hiding in the glare of the sun. A team of international astronomers have discovered three new near-Earth asteroids. Two have orbits that won't intersect with Earth's, but a third is a one and a half kilometre wide chunk of space rock that could someday cross our path. This comes just weeks after NASA deliberately crashed a rocket into an asteroid, the first full-scale test of asteroid deflection technology. Paul Delane is a professor of physics and astronomy at York University, and he spoke with Canada's CTV News to explain the details. So first, what is a planet-killer asteroid? When you're talking about an asteroid that is a kilometre in diameter or more, then the impact of that sort of an object on Earth is enough to throw up a significant amount of material into the jet stream to lower the planetary surface temperature, disrupt the food chain, and potentially administer a, uh, a, a deadly blow to a significant number of the life forms on this planet. Putting into a bit of perspective, this asteroid's only one and a half kilometers wide, but it could still cause a hell of a lot of damage. You don't want this thing to hit us. That's really the bottom line to it, which is why astronomers and others are looking to the heavens continuously to keep an eye open for such threats and why NASA, as you mentioned, performed DART, that uh, intercept mission to deflect an asteroid away to show us the capability. One and a half kilometers is a sizable rock and it doesn't matter where it comes down, it would cause serious devastation to our planet. So as I say, we do not want that to hit us and that's why we keep our eyes peeled for them. But 
finding the objects which are close to the sun, which is where this one is, AP7, is located, is doubly difficult. Looking in the opposite direction is relatively easy. We've found thousands of objects, but looking close to the sun, that's the big challenge and why this one was a bit disappointing to find. I know what you're thinking. How much time do we have? And will NASA roll out its asteroid deflection technology anytime soon? The important thing here is that AP7 is not on a collision course for them at the moment. We now know it. We uh, are going to monitor it. We have its orbit tracked, but it's not on a collision course for Earth. But it has the potential to hit us because it will cross our orbit. But it is not expected in at least the next 100 years because we can't really forecast beyond 100 years. This one is not in a, a dangerous position for us. If it was, then yes, the deflection technology that we have just demonstrated would be brought to bear on it. The longer in advance you know about the possible threat, the easier it is to deflect it. And so that's why we want to know where these objects are literally every minute of every day. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the hunt for the next pandemic and rats to the rescue. New outbreaks of the deadly Ebola virus are alarming scientists. Ebola is one of the deadliest of pathogens capable of jumping from wild animal to humans, just as COVID-19 likely did. This is called spillover, and disease detectives are warning that the threat of spillover has never been higher. This is because as urban populations grow, they start to come into contact with these wild animals. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, scientists are heading to global hotspots like Uganda to try and find the next deadly virus before it finds us. I would say another pandemic is guaranteed. Guaranteed. It's, it's not a matter of if but when. That's why we're so committed to preparation. That's wildlife epidemiologist Christine Johnson speaking on the US news show 60 Minutes. Johnson leads the UC Davis team and has been hunting viruses around the globe for decades. According to her... Bats are prime suspects for spillover. They harbour more viruses lethal to humans than any other mammal and could be responsible for the next deadly pandemic. And with communities moving deeper into the forests and closer to these bat populations, the risk of spillover has never been higher. Bernard Sabide is a top wildlife vet in Uganda working with Johnson and her UC Davis team in the Bawindi Penetrable Forest. The population has grown. People have moved into areas they never occupied before. That shrinkage of the buffer, the habitat between people and wildlife has become so narrow. So that increases the contact. Governments cannot stop people from moving in some of these areas because they have nowhere else to go. Like bats, primates also carry many viruses that have led to people. UC Davis epidemiologist and wildlife vet Tierra Smiley-Evans says that catching a virus early at the point of spillover is vital to containing it. There are probably more pathogens that we don't know about than ones that we do know about. We need to gather more information and more intelligence about what may be out there and able to spill over before it does. Whenever you're creating a new opportunity for humans to come in contact with wildlife populations that they were never in contact with before, you're creating a brand new situation. In order to control these situations, Smiley Evans collects saliva from the primates in the forest to understand what viruses they could be carrying. 
Combined with initiatives that train rural communities to be on the lookout for any unusual fevers or flu-like symptoms, scientists are able to match human illnesses to the animal viruses they found in the same area. It's a bit like putting pieces of a puzzle together. All the samples are tested in the same way for the same pathogens. So the goal is that if we're sampling at the same time, in the same area, we can start to connect the dots and understand when there's been transmission of a particular virus. As spillover threats grow, it's impossible to separate human health from the health of the natural world. The hunt for Pathogen X is a search for what threatens the animal world as much as it threatens us. I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but giant rats wearing tiny high-tech backpacks are being trained in Tanzania for search and rescue operations. Huh, yeah. Training's being led by Belgium-based non-profit Apopo. This is Donna Keane, a behavioural research scientist at the organisation. We started training last year and we taught them the, the basic behavioural sequence of go in, find a target human, pull the handle at your neck to let us know and come back. Then we just started really increasing the complexity of the environment. So we're still at that stage where we're just trying to make the environment as close to real life as possible in terms of the unpredictability and, and variability in, in these environments. The rats are outfitted with high-tech backpacks to enable real-time wireless communication from a debris site. So for now, the backpack only contains technology that helps us to work with the rat to find the people. So the technology it will include is a video camera, two-way audio, um, so that we can actually talk to people through the rat. Scientists say it can take nine months to train the rats, which then live for up to ten years. They hope to mobilise the rats for disaster responses after more trials. Still to come on the Sunday 7, a twindemic is on the horizon and the magic of mushrooms. Right after this. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Blood grown in a lab has been given to people in a world-first clinical trial. Research teams from Bristol, Cambridge, London and NHS Blood and Transplant are testing tiny quantities of blood, equivalent to a couple of spoonfuls, to see how it reacts inside the human body. We're really excited because it's the first time we've been able to grow enough red cells from stem cells in the laboratory to transfuse into healthy volunteers. And we really think that this is going to be a possible way of uh, making red cells in the future for patients who we currently find it really difficult to provide much blood for. This would help patients with rare blood types and blood disorders like sickle cell. It starts with a normal blood donation. Stem cells are isolated from the rest of the blood and put into a special solution for around three weeks. This encourages the cells to multiply and turn into red blood cells. So far, these red blood cells have been injected into two volunteers. This is Ashley Toy, Professor of Cell Biology at the University of Bristol. We've literally been working on this for 
10 years and we've now taken blood from donors, grown it in the laboratory, so taken the stem cells from donors, grown it up in the laboratory and it's now gone into people's arms and this is something we've been dreaming about for many, many years but now we're taking that first step into the clinic with lab-grown blood. It's a complex process trying to replicate a process our bodies do more efficiently than any lab can right now. But scientists want to see if the lab-grown cells have some advantages over nature. A regular blood donation contains a combination of both older cells at the end of their life and newer cells just beginning their journey. The researchers hope that in the lab-grown blood, all the cells would be new, meaning those who need regular transfusion wouldn't need them quite as often. The need for normal blood donations will remain, but the potential of this work could change lives. As temperatures drop and more and more people spend time indoors, health officials fear a rise in COVID-19 cases. But that's not the only concern. Authorities are also worried about the return of the flu season. Together, the two diseases could pose a danger to high-risk groups like the elderly. Earlier in the pandemic, measures that slowed the spread of the coronavirus also helped people avoid getting infected with other pathogens like those causing the flu. Here's Richard Peabody speaking with DW News. He's the pathogen team lead at the World Health Organization. Influenza, I mean, like SARS-CoV-2, is a respiratory infection. So the measures that were put in place to reduce COVID transmission also impacted influenza transmission. So when we reduced our mixing with other people, when we reduced our international travel, that also reduce the ability of influenza to spread. But as the urgency of the pandemic subsides and measures relaxed, flu cases are also rising again. Although they may not be at elevated risk of severe disease, if they fall sick, then that also increases absenteeism from work, which has important implications then for the workforce and its ability to the healthcare system to operate. And of course, um, there's also potential risks that um, healthcare workers can infect their patients as well. In an effort to stave off the worrisome scenario of a twindemic in the upcoming winter, healthcare authorities are now spreading a simple message. Timely vaccination against both diseases can save lives. Magic mushrooms be used to treat depression? Well, apparently so, according to data from a new clinical trial conducted by London-based pharmaceutical company Compass Pathways. The mid-stage study involved 233 patients with treatment-resistant depression who failed to benefit from at least two antidepressants. Each participant received a single 25mg, 10mg or 1mg dose of a synthetic formulation of the compound psilocybin. That's the ingredient that makes mushrooms magic. After three weeks, researchers found the patients who received the highest dose had significantly reduced symptoms of depression versus those given the lower dose. Guy Goodwin, chief medical officer at Compass, says it's the latest of its kind. The treatment we're trying to employ is psilocybin, COMP360. That's a crystalline synthetic form of psilocybin, which we give as a single administration to patients uh, with psychological support. And we have followed them up after this treatment for up to 12 weeks. So how does the drug actually work? Well, whilst traditional antidepressants normally take weeks to kick in, 
A dose of this drug quickly transports patients into a waking dreamlike state that lasts between four to six hours. James Rucker, consultant psychiatrist at King's College London, explains. Like a sort of amplifier of, of mental processes, um, there are some characteristic effects like um, misperception, so things can start to look strange, your sense of time can speed up or slow down. And the idea with psilocybin therapy is to go to the dark places in your mind where you might find a little gem of insight about why you might be feeling the way you're feeling. The study shows that about 20% of patients in the highest dose group, 25 milligrams, saw a sustained response after three months versus roughly 10% in the one milligram control group. Given patients suffering from depression currently have limited treatment options, these findings are a step in the right direction. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Dog.